Good morning. Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 3. We'll be in verses 14 through 22 this morning. If you're using the Pew Bibles there in front of you, you can find uh, this passage on page 1030. This letter from Jesus to the church at Laodicea, this church that is indifferent and pitiable and yet sought. And so today we're going to come to the last of these seven letters of the Lord Jesus Christ to the churches in the book of Revelation. These are seven literal churches that were scattered around Asia Minor in the first century, representative of really all the churches that were in existence at that time, but also representative of every church that would follow in all the centuries to follow. That's important because that means we can hear these words to the churches as words from Christ to them, but also as words from Christ to us, so that at any given time, any of these words to any of these churches could be precisely what we need to hear as a church. At any given time, these words to these churches could be the words that we need to hear as individual followers of Christ. I don't know about you, but Every letter to every church at some point has struck me right here, humbled me, convicted me, encouraged me, exhorted me. And this letter to Laodicea is no different. Chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Please pray with me. Father, it's our prayer that you would accomplish in us this very thing that you request of us, that we would hear, that we would receive from your word, that we would believe, that we would be zealous, that we would repent, that we would open this door of invitation to intimate fellowship with you. We pray for any who are here who don't know you, see, who are on the outside, that this morning you would open their eyes to see the depth of sin, the glory of Christ, the fullness of atonement that he accomplished for us at the cross, the certainty of the resurrection, the guarantee that we will all stand before him. 
so that even this morning you would grant repentance that leads to faith and reconciliation to you. So, Father, we pray that you would have your way with us, your church, in Christ's name, amen. Well, the teaching of Jesus Christ, hopefully we've all seen by now, just doesn't jive with the teaching of the world. He talks in a way that the world just doesn't talk. In Mark 10, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And it says, and the disciples were amazed at his words. Just didn't compute. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. They just couldn't fathom it. Leading them to ask, well, then who can be saved? Right there in the first century, among the disciples of Jesus Christ, there existed this belief that to be well-off materially meant that you were well-off spiritually. That if you were well-off physically and materially, then that just meant God was with you. God was for you. God had already basically saved you. You could look at the Pharisees and Sadducees and how well they dressed and how well they spoke and how well-off they were physically and materially and go, yeah, clearly they're saved. Clearly the Lord is with them. So that now Jesus comes along and says, yeah, how difficult is it? Yeah, easier to fit a camel through the eye of a needle than to get a rich person to heaven. They just don't see their need. So that the disciples are going to say, well, then who can be saved? If the rich aren't in, then who's in? To which Jesus responds, well, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Because wealth really can provide the luxury of being indifferent of feeling safe, of being above trouble, of not sensing every day real deep need. I mean, who cares about tax codes, about crime surges, about the price of housing, about microchip shortages and truck prices? When you just have enough money to live above all that, to not feel that, when you have all the medical insurance you could need, all the treatment you could need, all the finest doctors around you, it's easy to think you're not really that close to physical catastrophe and death. Worst of all, when well-off materially, we don't feel a regular sense of spiritual need for the mercies of Christ, spiritual need for the grace of Christ. We equate physical affluence with spiritual affluence. We feel strong physically, and so we assume we're strong spiritually. This was the Laodicean problem. This was the temptation that every church in the history of the world at some point will face. Laodicea is going to sit about nine miles northwest of Colossae. According to Colossians 4, 12 through 13, Epaphras is the one who brought the gospel there to Colossae after he'd received the gospel from Paul in Ephesus and gets converted. He goes back to probably his hometown, proclaims Christ, People repent, believe, the church is born. And then at some point in the years to follow, Epaphras is going to take steps to get the gospel to Laodicea and then to Heropolis, which are two major cities up the Lycus River Valley from Colossae. 
Even in Colossians 4.13, the Apostle Paul says of Epaphras, For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. And he goes on to write, And when this letter has been read among you, that's the Colossian letter, have it also read to the church of the Laodiceans, and see to it that you read the letter that is from Laodicea, which is probably a reference to Ephesians. So Ephesians, the, the book of Ephesians, is coming down from the north. They have Colossians. They're meant to send it to the, to, the, to the north. And so these letters are just circulating among the churches. And Laodicea is one of the churches that's getting all these epistles from the Apostle Paul. In other words, God, there's a history there of God speaking to this church, of this church receiving from God's Word. So that now, here in Revelation 3.14, it just begins with a direct address to them, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, right. And as with the previous six letters, Jesus begins with a clear identification of who's speaking, who's writing to them. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. These words come for Jesus, from Jesus Christ, and they are the words of the Amen, meaning these are the final words. It's not over when the fat lady sings, it's over when Jesus speaks. And when Jesus speaks, the whole creation should just say, Amen. Why? Well, because it says, He is the faithful and true witness. When He speaks, everybody should say, Amen, not stand up to argue or debate. His testimony in the courtroom of God, is the one that matters more than any other. He is the beginning of God's creation. In other words, His words created the universe. In Colossians 1.15, Jesus is called the firstborn of all creation, not because He was created, but because by Him all things were created, Colossians 1.16. With His words, the world came into being. Think about that. Jesus spoke the whole world into existence. Everything you see that exists, exists because God spoke it. And with His words, it will be consumed. With His words, it will unravel. He sees perfectly. He testifies perfectly. He judges perfectly. What that means is what He has to say to the Laodiceans is not just a mere opinion. It's not a best guess. It is a faithful and true witness. And he's going to be witness to, number one, the problem and the peril. That will be our first point. The problem and the peril facing the Laodiceans, as well as the fiction and the fact. That's point two, about the Laodiceans. In order to offer them the counsel and the comfort. Point number three, for the Laodiceans. The problem and the peril, the fiction and the fact, and then the counsel and the comfort. Firstly, the problem and the peril. Verse 15, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. In other words, they professed to be Christians, but they weren't zealous for him. They were sort of cruise control Christians. They casually dated Jesus. When useful to take his name, they took his name. When costly to them, they'd sort of leave it behind. Go to church each week, well, sure, why not? Especially Christmas, Easter, special holidays, or just when you need an emotional pick-me-up. But give their lives entirely to the rule of Jesus Christ 
like every day of every week, every hour of every day, suffer for Jesus Christ, be despised for Jesus Christ, lose their lives or even livelihood for Jesus Christ? Well, let's not get carried away. It's just too intense. It's too much. Let's just sort of walk the middle of the road. Safe Christianity. No real sense of need for him. We'll call on him for emergencies only, but no real desperation. They're kind of like spiritual pacifists in this sort of grand battle for the souls of people and for the kingdom of Christ. They're Switzerland in World War II. Just wanting to play it safe, not lose too much, not lose their wealth. Or like the men of Sukkoth in Judges 8 who refused to help Gideon as he's pursuing the kings of Midian because Gideon had not yet defeated those kings of Midian. So the leaders of Sukkoth, they wanted to kind of see how's this going to turn out first. You going to really get Zeba and Zalmunna, these kings? Then we'll maybe help out. To which Gideon said, well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Judges 8, 7 which is exactly what Gideon did. Even more, Jesus did not shed his blood for our salvation so that we could be neutral about him, so that we could just play it safe with him, so that we could be indifferent. Verse 15, would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And those phrases, neither cold nor hot, and lukewarm would have had very personal significance to Laodicea and to this church. Because the city of Heropolis, that's going to sit around five miles to the northeast, was known for its hot springs. And so many people would travel there to bathe in those hot waters, to drink it that had, was rich in minerals and was thought to have sort of healing powers. But at minimum, it was just very soothing to bathe in, to drink. And Colossae, nine miles to the southeast, was known for its cold springs. And so many enjoyed just drinking of the waters there that were cool and refreshing. But if you take the hot water from Heropolis and try to get it down to Laodicea, or the cold water from Colossae and get it to Laodicea, by the time you got there, it was lukewarm. And if you tried to drink it, it was disgusting. All the impurities were just magnified. You just wanted to spit it out of your mouth. It wasn't useful for anything. So when Jesus says to the Laodicean church, you know, you're, you're kind of lukewarm in my mouth. They knew precisely what that meant. Neither soothing nor refreshing. You're not zealous for me, not passionate for me, not willing to lose everything for me not willing to proclaim me, put your lives on the line for me, devote every day to me, but most importantly, just live with this sense of dependence upon me. To be on the fence with Jesus Christ, to work both sides of the spiritual war, to seek praise from God and praise from people, to play politics with Jesus, to serve God and money, to try to hold on to heaven and the world, is to become lukewarm in his mouth. And to persist in that state, no matter how often he reproves, no matter how often he corrects, just simply proves that we maybe no longer, we just didn't begin to you know, belong to him in the first place. 
Judas Iscariot, if you recall, jumped on the bandwagon with Jesus when it seemed to be the best ticket to earthly wealth and glory. Hey, this is the next king. This is the king of Israel. This is the king of the Jews. He's doing all these miracles. Like he's on his way to the throne. This is the bandwagon I want to be on. But when that bandwagon turned to the cross, when it turned to suffering, to agony, to poverty, to sacrifice, to servitude, well, how quickly he threw his loyalties to the other side. He found a new wagon. Praise God that Jesus is not lukewarm in his service to the Father for our salvation. Aren't you glad? Praise God he didn't go halfway to the cross or halfway from the tomb or halfway ascended to heaven, nor does he intercede for you now halfway, but wholeheartedly, completely. Jesus is zealous for your soul. He's zealous for your salvation. He's zealous for your adoption in the heavenly family. He's zealous for your everlasting life. So zealous that he gave his life in your place. Nor does he want us to almost arrive with him in glory, to almost get there. No, Jesus wants the Laodiceans to see the peril of being lukewarm in his mouth. The problem of it, the peril of it, because after all, they just didn't see it. They really thought they were crushing it for Christ. They even had t-shirts that said, crushing it for Christ. They wouldn't wear it publicly, just around the house, to bed at night, but at least where they could see it in the mirror and congratulate themselves at how much they were crushing it for Christ. They even thought their wealthy lives were the products of God's favor toward them. We must be okay with God. Look how prosperous we are in the world. When in reality, that wealth just sort of provided this incubation for their lethargy spiritually. I go into one of these, you know, big Tyson chicken warehouses and look at all those chickens under those heat lamps. And you go, oh, that must be very comfortable under the heat. And they're all under the heat going, wow, this is great. But do you know where this is going? Do you know why you're being kept warm? Why you're being incubated? Well, for a slaughter. And so Jesus speaks this warning. You don't want to incubate spiritual lethargy. We don't, you don't want to use wealth as an insulation from suffering, from bearing his name in this world. The Laodiceans thought their standing with the Lord was secure, and that is because they viewed themselves through a fiction, not through fact. Which brings us to the second point, verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. There's the fiction not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. There's the fact. Laodicea was a major trade city, one of the financial centers of this region, kind of like a Wall Street for first century Asia Minor, one of the wealthiest cities in the world. In fact, when an earthquake hits Laodicea in AD 60, a couple, several decades before John wrote this, it leveled the entire city of Laodicea, reduced it to rubble. And the Roman Empire offered assistance to Laodicea to help rebuild it. In Laodicea, they refused it. They rebuilt the entire city from their own resources. 
and prided themselves on that. As a city, they could truly say, we need nothing. Roman Empire, yeah, keep your funds. We'll just rebuild it from our own savings accounts. We'll rebuild this city from our own resources. They boasted in that. And sadly, by this time, the church in Laodicea had absorbed that mentality of the world and applied it now even to their spiritual state. That Because of their material affluence, they wrongly assumed spiritual affluence. They mistook financial riches for spiritual riches, worldly prosperity for heavenly prosperity. So they just didn't feel any sense of dependence on him. Any sense of desperation for him. Any sense of just waking up in the morning, Lord, save me. Lord, help me. How am I going to eat breakfast without your mercy? How am I going to do anything today without your strength, without your power? Because few sentiments are more anti-gospel than I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. I've got what it takes. I've figured it out. If I get it over my head, maybe I'll call on Jesus. Hey, if he comes through, great. If he doesn't, I've got it. If Jesus is my plan B, then I do not understand the desperation of my condition. I do not understand the terror of my enemies. I do not understand the depth of the trouble that sin brings. I need nothing. Few postures of heart more deadly to the soul. Self-sufficiency. Self-reliance. Self-satisfaction. That's world religion. That's not gospel. That may sort of work with a rugged individualism, economic approach to just everyday life in America. But it moves you from heaven, not closer. It's not a way to relate to God. It's not a way to think about salvation. It's not a way to understand where eternity you'll spend. Jesus is not a spiritual condiment in our diet. He's the whole meal. I need nothing is the worst of all fictions. In the Laodicean church, they believed it. So it's worth pausing and asking yourself, where do I relate that way to God in my life? Lord, I'm good. Hey, if you could come through over here, if you could sort of do a little bit over here, if you could give a little boost here. But all in all, I've got it. I think it's most expressed through prayerlessness. Self-sufficiency doesn't pray. Or it only prays as a performance. Desperation for God. Dependence upon God. If he doesn't come through, I perish for God. Praise without ceasing. Because the fact is, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Wretched. Meaning apart from grace, you're vile. Not clean, but corrupted. More than you could imagine. Romans 7.24 is the only other place in Scripture this adjective wretched shows up. Where the Apostle Paul cries, Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? When we really come face to face with God, with Scripture, 
and we really are honest about our condition, that's where the gospel takes us. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But then it doesn't leave us there. The very next thing Paul says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. First, the gospel tells us, teaches us to say, wretched man that I am. But then it teaches us to say, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. There's forgiveness in him. There's life in him. There's reconciliation in him. There's hope in him. Well, the Laodiceans grasps neither the condition nor that conclusion. Pitiable. In other words, not enviable in heaven, but pitiable. That they may swagger down the halls of human approval and get five-star reviews all over the place. But in heaven, one-star review. And only one star because there wasn't a zero-star option. But that's how heaven appraises. That's how heaven sees. There's one reason why success in the eyes of the world can be so deadly is we might assume that God appraises the same way, on the same terms, for the same reasons. Poor. They were rich in finances, but poor in faith. Rich in property, but poor in piety. And to be spiritually bankrupt while assuming spiritual wealth is spiritually fatal. That's what he's trying to help them see. It defined the Pharisees and Sadducees. It defined apostate Israel in Hosea 12.8. Listen to this, where Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. Isn't that amazing? Because I have succeeded so greatly at life, nobody can find iniquity or sin in me. So clear they're not thinking about God. Poor. Blind. Again, to know your spiritual blindness and to plead for the mercy of Christ to heal you is wise and it is good. But to claim spiritual sight apart from Jesus Christ is blindness. It's the guts of self-righteousness. Listen to John 9, what Jesus says. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. Meaning if you understood your blindness, you would turn to me and be healed. But now you say, We see your guilt remains. That's why Jesus healed so many blind people in the Gospels. Not because he had a particular concern for physical sight, but because that is what the nation needed more than anything. That's what people needed more than anything. To spiritually see. To see our sin. To see our need for God's forgiving grace. To see the atonement of Jesus Christ at the cross, to see our need to be united to his death, to see our need to be united to his resurrection, to see our need for his mercy and grace and forgiveness, 
to see our need for his spirit to indwell us, to give us new hearts, to see our need for him to abide with us and in us, to see our need for justification before the throne of God on the last day. So again, another place to pause and ask yourself, do you see? And if you don't see, ask God to help you see. And naked. After Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, you'll recall they realize they're naked. They experience a sense of shame. And rather than call out to God for help, they go get some fig leaves and sew them together and cover themselves. And probably thought for a few hours, hey, this is pretty good. This is going to work out. Until God showed up. Until they heard him. And then they realized, oh wait, this doesn't cover so well. All of a sudden, their fig leaves didn't do the trick. They thought they were covered. But even in their fig leaves, they were naked before God. Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. In other words, to be covered in anything other than Jesus Christ is to be naked before God. To be covered in anything other than Jesus Christ is to be ashamed before God. And the Laodiceans forgot this. They were covered in their nice, sweet, silky clothing, best garments, and thought somehow this translates to heaven. So how do you know your, spear, your true spiritual condition? How do I know my true spiritual condition? I think this passage just th- throws that question right in front of us. How do you really know how you look before God? How do you really know what you see? How do you really know where you stand? Do we humbly submit ourselves to the examination of God through his word? Is that how we measure it? Do we examine through the word of God? Do we ask him to examine us and show us where there's anything in our hearts and lives that is displeasing to him, that he would turn us from that way, that he would lead us differently. Listen to David's prayer in Psalm 139. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. David knew, Lord, I probably don't even know I need you to search me. I need you to try me. I need you to show me. And I need you to lead me in a way that's everlasting. He prayed again in Psalm 141, Let the righteous strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It's oil for my head. Let not my head refuse it. So do we also submit ourselves to the examination of God's Word in the hands of our brothers and sisters in Christ around us? Do we ask them, show me where you think I'm wretched. Show me where you see that I'm poor. Show me where you see that I'm pitiable. Show me where you see that I'm naked. Show me, help me, pray for me. You see here even just the value of the body of Christ. And gracious, humble, kind ministry of the word to one another. 
so that we don't just spend our lives looking at our own little mirrors, measuring ourselves according to ourselves so that we congratulate ourselves based on ourselves and continue on blind to what God sees. Surely none of us would have put off this conversation till Judgment Day, right? That's not when we want to talk about this for the first time. That's not when we want to find out. I have a good friend who flies the triple sevens, those big, massive Boeings across the Pacific. In cruising speed, he tells me on those, is about 560 miles per hour. And he said, when you're flying, if you're one degree off course, in an hour, you're 100 miles from where you should be. In two hours, you're closer to 1,000 miles from where you should be, getting exponentially worse by the hour. And he told me, he said, John, you could be sitting in the cockpit next to me, and they've got pedals, he said, that we can actually turn the plane with pedals. He said, and I could move that plane a degree, and you would never feel it. You'd never know. All you have is the instruments. You can't just fly by feel. That's how life with Christ is. We can't just fly by feel. We rely upon his word. We rely upon his spirit. We rely on the brothers and sisters around us who love us. We rely on the instruments that God has given us to see. Are we even a degree off? Because standing before the throne of Jesus is not the moment we want to realize how far off course we've been walking. That's why this text is here. That's why Jesus spoke these words to his church. It's why he recorded this letter for every church, every century to follow, to read, to be recalibrated by. But then praise God, he doesn't just leave us here to figure it out on our own. He's actually going to give us words of counsel. He's going to give us words of comfort, which brings us to our third and final point, the counsel and the comfort. Because the answer to their condition was not physical, but spiritual. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, in white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And Laodicea, not ironically, but providentially, was famous for three big industries. One was banking, one was textiles, and one was medical treatment, including this very popular eye salve that they produced there and exported it all over the world. One of their claims to fame was they could help other people see with whatever these ointments were that they were making. So Jesus is going to use those three exact metaphors to point to their spiritual poverty, their spiritual nakedness, their spiritual blindness. So they would see that thing that you give to the whole world is the thing you need from me. First of all, buy from me gold. That's counsel one. What's the comfort that you may be rich? To buy gold from God that has been refined in fire, metaphorically, means to approach him by faith. To approach him through his word. To approach him by his spirit for his help, for his forgiveness, for his grace, for his mercy that leads to everlasting life. He said, when we do that, you're truly rich. When you're poor in spirit, you're truly rich. 
When you see your need for me and cry out to me and seek me by faith, you're truly rich. When you realize I have all the riches, you don't have the riches, and you come to me seeking my riches, you're rich. Isaiah 55, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. It's ironic, isn't it? Don't have money, come and buy. Don't have what it takes, come and purchase. Why? Because the purchase is fa- it's by faith, it's free. You just come and you ask. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? He says, come by faith. See your need. Feel your hunger. Ask me to give you bread from heaven. Ask me to give you living water. Ask me to give you treasures in heaven, and you'll get it. James 2.5, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Rich people in Jerusalem, as you look at those poor in your churches, remember he's chosen them to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom, meaning they're richer than anybody. Counsel two, buy from me white garments, comfort that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness not be seen. In other words, don't trust in your righteousness. Don't trust in your ability, but trust in the righteousness of Christ to cover you. Rather than tell yourselves, I'm okay, I need nothing. We tell ourselves, I'm just a poor, wretched sinner who needs to be covered in the blood of Christ. Just a poor, wretched sinner who needs to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, who needs the grace of God to forgive me, to adopt me, to dress me as his child in the garments that he provides. Isaiah 61.10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. That's real covering. Because as we pass through into heaven, all this is going to burn away. Our bodies are going to go into the ground. Our clothes are going to get burned up. We're going to be raised. We're going to be given new bodies. And there, what do you want to be covered in? Hopefully not your own righteousness, but rather the righteousness of Christ that is covered and covering you. That's why we should notice that this buying is a posture of heart before God. It's not a list of 15 things we do for God. This buying is a childlike faith. It's a humble sense of dependence upon His grace. A humble sense of dependence upon Christ. That's what this buying is. But it's also a way of seeing, which leads to this third bit of counsel. To buy from me, solve to anoint your eyes. And the comfort is that you may see. In God's providence this past week, I kid you not, I got an eye infection in my left eyelid. I've never heard of it. I've never experienced it. But my entire eye swelled shut. 
I thought I understood the text well enough. God thought I needed just a living illustration. <laughs> and I had to call a doctor, or rather my wife had to make me call a doctor, who then prescribed an antibiotic ointment that I rubbed on my eye for seven days, three times a day, in order to, to get rid of the infection, and then my eye opened and I could see. And in God's mercy, he only did it to one eye. He could have done it to two. But it was the exact experience of, oh, this is how blindness works. Like you, when they seal shut, you don't see anything. And you go looking for ointment to open, to, to heal your eyes so that you can see. And Jesus is saying to the Laodiceans, this is what you need for your souls. This is what you need for the eyes of your heart. How can we look to Jesus and live if we already think we live without him? How can we ask him to open our eyes if we assume we already see? In Mark 10, 48, remember blind Bartimaeus is crying out to Jesus continually, Son of David, have mercy on me. Everybody's trying to shut him up. He's just crying out. He knows he's somewhere out there. He can't see. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? That seems like a strange question, doesn't it? He's blind, he's like, and Jesus is like, what do you want me to do for you? Everyone around could have easily said, well, come on, Jesus, isn't that obvious? He wants you to restore his sight. To which Jesus could easily ask, well, isn't it obvious that this isn't really about physical sight? Isn't it obvious that nobody here sees? Isn't it obvious that all of you are blind? In other words, why is he the only one asking me to restore his sight? Why aren't all of you? Well, because when we physically see, we don't realize we don't see. And so we don't ask him, as Bartimaeus did, teacher, let me recover my sight, and Jesus heals him. But again, not so that one guy can all of a sudden have 20-20 vision, but so that everybody around can realize that's what we all need. That's what we need him to do. Lord, help us see. Jesus wants us to see our true need for him. And it may seem a bit insensitive and uncaring to tell people that they're spiritually poor, that they're spiritually blind, that they're spiritually naked, but this is how a loving Redeemer speaks to those who he redeems. This is how Jesus, who loves his church, speaks to his church, which brings us to the next point in verse 19 and fourth bit of counsel. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. What's the counsel? Be zealous and repent in response to God's Word. What's the comfort? Jesus loves you. Jesus reproves us, disciplines us because He loves us. The last thing we want is a God who's apathetic toward us a God who's lethargic about us, a God who's lukewarm toward us. No, those whom he loves, he disciplines, and he chastens every son, every daughter that he receives. And so here's Jesus chastening his church because he loves us. And that truth that he loves us should motivate us now to be zealous for him, to repent before him to be zealous for his glory and to repent from self-sufficiency, to be zealous for
for his kingdom to come and to repent from spiritual sleepiness, to be zealous for his church to thrive and repent from indifference, to remember his love for us and recognize our need for him every minute of every day of every year till he brings us home. So tempting when everything around it is just going well. We've got the resources. We've got the comforts. We've got the ease. We've got the retirement saved up. We've got the gated community. We've got the cars new. We've got, and we can just coast in. He says, because I love you, I'm going to reprove you and call you to be zealous for me, to don't equate all that horizontal ease with vertical ease. Verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Counsel number five, hear his voice. Open the door to Jesus Christ. What's the comfort? He will come in and provide intimate fellowship with you. It's not so much a call to salvation, a call to repent and believe the gospel. It's really not actually a great evangelism verse, even though we use it in evangelism. It's a great communion with the Lord as a follower of Jesus verse. Hey, you're sort of sleepy, you're lethargic, you're lukewarm, you're, I'm knocking, open the door, see your need for me, desire me, desperate for me, desire fellowship with me. John 15, verse 5, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's what Jesus is saying here to the Laodiceans. I'm at the door, knocking, open, hear, bring me in, Let's abide together. Let's dine together. Let's walk together. You abiding in me. Me abiding in you. Because the Laodiceans felt self-sufficient. And Jesus wanted them to see their utter insufficiency apart from him. Their complete futility apart from him. I don't know if you feel it. I feel it. Like I can't go like a day off without wrecking something. I can't just sort of go a few hours without the Word of God, a few days without desperate prayer before God, without stuff starting to wilt. I feel that. He wants us to feel that so that we'll open the door, so that we'll hear His voice, so that we'll realize, yeah, Lord, How about if I just stick close to you until the end? How about you abide in me and I abide in you? Because apart from you, I can't do anything. Which is the very opposite of I need nothing. The one who conquers, oh, grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. What's the counsel? Conquer. What's the comfort? Christ, who conquered, will grant the privilege of reigning with him. He defeated death at the cross. He defeated sin at the cross. He defeated Satan at the cross. 
and the resurrection was the evidence that he defeated and conquered. All those things. He says, because he conquered, you who are in me, conquer. Can't possibly mean pull yourself up by your bootstraps and succeed on your own. It can't possibly mean be self-sufficient. It must mean conquer through dependence upon Jesus Christ by walking through His Spirit every day and feeding on His Word every day. Rather than say, I need nothing, where we say, I need the mercies of Christ every hour. And then we will conquer. That's the comfort. Because He conquers. It means live by His grace, not by your grit means live by his performance. He's conquered, not by your performance. means take refuge in his cross where he conquered in order to share in his crown. What a promise. The day will come, I will raise you, glorify you, and sit you, and you will reign with me over a new heavens and a new earth. And the letter is going to close with a summary word of counsel. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus is speaking by his Spirit to his church, hear, which means believe, obey, hope in these words, seize these words, live your life through these words. Realize you are rich in Christ, you are covered by Christ. You can see through Christ. You are loved by Christ. You have fellowship and communion with Christ. And someday you'll reign with Christ. So be zealous. Repent. Because the next thing to happen is Revelation 4.1. And a door standing open to heaven. And John being called up to witness what's going to take place next. And in verse 2, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. This is God himself. In verse 4, around the throne, 24 thrones with 24 elders seated upon them. In verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. In verse 6, around the throne, four living creatures, these being wondrous and terrifying, each of them day and night, never ceasing to say, verse 8, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And in verse 10, the elders falling down before him, their crowns cast down before him, saying in verse 11, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And then there in Revelation 5-6, between the throne and the four living creatures, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. This is Jesus Christ standing there. Only He is worthy to take this scroll that God has. Only He is worthy to take the scroll of God's judgment, to open the scroll, to oversee and to carry out all that is decreed in the scroll. And when He's taken the scroll in verse 8, the four living creatures and all the elders are going to fall down and worship Him. And then myriads and myriads of angels 
are going to cry out in verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then every creature in heaven, every creature on earth, every creature under the earth, every creature in the sea will cry out in verse 13, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So why are these letters to the churches here? To prepare us for that scene. To prepare us for that moment. To prepare us to worship. To prepare us to face him. To reprove what needs to be reproved. To restrain what needs to be restrained. To commend what needs to be commended. To correct what needs to be corrected. To warn and to encourage. To counsel and to comfort. To prepare the hearts of God's people from every tribe, from every tongue, from every place that He's redeemed them to face their King, to face their Redeemer, to face their Savior, to face their Lord, to face Jesus. Faith will give way to sight. But only true faith will want to see this sight because only true faith will survive this sight. Mortality will give way to immortality. Every tear will be wiped away. Every evil will be renewed. Every suffering, every ounce of suffering will be turned to glory. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you that you are not silently sitting in heaven, as you are certainly free to. You're not simply preparing to judge us all as you would be free to. You've spoken. You sent your son Jesus into the world. He lived righteously. He died in our place. He absorbed your wrath. He went into the ground. He was raised on the third day for the salvation of all who would repent and believe in him. He revealed himself to many witnesses. He ascended and even now sits at your right hand where he intercedes for us. So we thank you for these words from him through your spirit to your church so that we can hear so that we can be zealous and repent, so that by your grace we cannot be seduced by the things of this world, but fix our eyes on Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's only fitting that we respond uh, in worship and through song, and so please stand as we sing, Turn Your Eyes.